I don't need to deal with toilets and tenants. I could just buy existing businesses, which are hotels. And when you purchase hotels, you're purchasing the land, you're purchasing the business itself. So any revenue it generates, whether it's Wi-Fi, the candy store, the restaurant tenants, you know, the services that clients pay for when they come stay, those are all a part of the potential revenue of the business. And that's what's potentially split between the investors after expenses are paid. Welcome to the Aid to Assets podcast, the ultimate podcast for aspiring real estate investors. I'm your host, Tiffany Watson. Join me as we discuss real estate investing for nine to fivers. We'll talk about everything from money mindsets and property ownership and different strategies you can use to invest in real estate. I want to empower investors, especially those of us who are working full time, who want to navigate the world of real estate, uncover the secrets to building wealth, generate passive income to achieve financial freedom. Equip yourself with resources from experts, practical tips, and step-by-step guides on how to kickstart your real estate journey. We'll also hear from nine to fivers who started to build their own portfolios, what they did and how they did it, so you can do it too. Tune in and transform your main job into your biggest silent investor in your real estate investment business. This is your Aid to Assets. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Aid to Assets podcast. My name is Tiffany, and I have the honor and privilege of interviewing investors, nine survivors who then went to go on to start and scale their real estate portfolios and the people that helped them do it. And so I'm super excited about my guest here today. Tell the people who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Hey, everybody. I'm super excited to be here. My name is Aquania Escarne. I am the creator and founder of The Purpose of Money, a platform that teaches women how to build wealth through life insurance and investing in real estate. So hopefully today we will talk about my journey into real estate investing and how I went from rentals to hotels to apartment syndications. Yes, I'm so excited. All the different types of real estate. So this is going to be amazing. So I want to jump in the good stuff because I want people to already know why you are the bomb.com and they should definitely listen to this entire interview. So tell us, tell me about what's your real estate portfolio right now? What's that looking like? So it's fairly interesting. I have one rental in Maryland, and that is the house that my husband and I started our family in. And we decided when we expanded that we didn't want to move back. So it's a rental. But I also have four hotels where I have some ownership and I've invested with other investors. I have 354 units in Florida in an apartment syndication and I'm constantly looking for more opportunities to expand. So I now focus on commercial real estate, which allows me that passive income and probably only capital and very little work on a day-to-day basis. So I am always looking for more opportunities like that. But on average, when you take in consideration everything that I'm a part of, it's about a $34 million portfolio. Hold on, hold on. You're not just going to drop that like it's regular. (laughs) Wait a minute. A $34 million portfolio. And how long have you been investing? Ooh, so technically since 2012, when we moved and turned our first home into a rental. And so for a lot of people who are trying to figure out where to get started, I honestly think that's the best way because it gives you insight into being a landlord. It also lets you leverage in a house that you know already really well. What I mean by that is my husband and I, we had this amazing opportunity in 2012 where my job sent me to Dubai and my husband was able to find a position in his company too. So we went to Dubai for three years. That's where we expanded our family, but we also rented out our condo while we were gone because in 2006, when my husband purchased the property, he purchased at the height of the market. And y'all know, 2006, 2007, everything was gravy, right? Mm-hmm. Everything was overpriced. And 2008, everything crashed, right? right? So 2012, we weren't really in a position to sell that house without having either a short sale or owing some money on the mortgage. So we said renting is the way to go. It allows us to continue to pay the mortgage until we can refinance or figure out something else. And it provides this passive income because we weren't going to be paying the mortgage while we were gone. So fast forward to... What I learned from that, even though I didn't realize I was learning a lot of major lessons. We got back from Dubai in 2015. 
two kids in tow, decided to move from Maryland to Virginia and wanted to also get into more real estate investing. So at that time, I was like, rentals, 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 let's let's do it. So me and a business partner started to look into other cities because the D.C. area is super expensive. So we went into the Philadelphia market, which at the time it was amazing. Like you could purchase really inexpensive row houses for less than $50,000 in some cases and then charge 900 to 1200 a month in rent. You could make your money back in two to three years if you had no major hiccups or maintenance issues. So it was all about the cash flow. And my, me and my business partner found actually from my job, I, at the time I was working for the government and another employee that I was cool with was like from the Philly area or like went to Temple. So one day we were having lunch and she was like, girl, me and my husband, we go to Philly like every weekend to hang out with our friends from college. And we just bought a house there. And I was like, who does that? Like who buys a house just because you go to Philly every weekend? And she said, oh, it was so worth it. It's cheaper. The, the mortgage is literally cheaper than hotels. She said, you know, our mortgage is like 300 a month. I was like 300 a month. Like, let, let's talk about that. Rewind. How do you get a, <laughs> how do you get a mortgage that's 300 a month in the Northeast? Like, right. That's, right. that's not, that's not normal prices for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So she broke it down. She was like, I have a realtor, realtorsthebomb.com. Shout out to uh, Dave Foster. And he helped us find a property, a row house. It was less than 50, about $50,000 to purchase. And we got a mortgage on it. So it's our second, second home. I was like, what? Wow. (laughs) Dave, hook me up. So literally I called Dave Foster. Dave Foster was like, I got five properties lined up, drive up to Philly on Saturday bring your business partner. We're going to make it happen. And that's exactly what happened. We saw five properties in one day, different levels of distress. Some of them mm-hmm. had tenants. Some of them were vacant. And we got lucky with an estate sale or blessed. I'm not lucky. Okay. I'm blessed, right? So we got lucky. We got blessed with the fact that there were some kids mm-hmm. whose father had just passed away. He had lived in the house for the last 20 years. And took really good care of it, but passed away. And the family was like, we don't want this house. And me and my business partner, we had cash. So we could leverage this opportunity to get a motivated seller, aka the kids who did not want this house, to sell us this property for about $36,000. We were able to close in 10 days and wow. get to work. And the work we had to do was mostly cosmetic. We st- and because this was our first out-of-state property, we did not like, oh, we, we got cash. Let's just do it. Ring it up. No. We did an inspection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we realized, okay, with the inspection, this house is good bones, doesn't really need a lot of work. In fact, everything we did was cosmetic. We put down new floors. We upgraded the kitchen because kitchen and bathroom sell. And mm-hmm. We like did a new coat of paint, everything else, maybe some light fixtures, changing Mm -hmm. some handles, but it was not any major maintenance required. So that was really, really good for us. And they walked away with the cash. We walked away with the keys in 10 days, right? Then we were able to move in a tenant at a higher than a market about, I think it was, we started out at maybe 900 a month in a gorgeous neighborhood where we moved in while we were just fixing it up mm-hmm. and the block captain came and was like, hi, I'm the neighborhood watch. On, so that's captain. when we knew like <laughs> we in the right spot because one, hey. they have a neighborhood watch. So mm-hmm. they're going to be watching your place basically. And they were super like the neighborhood was the bomb.com. They had really good involvement. We went around Christmas time and they decorated for Christmas. So oh. I always tell people like, look at what, People tr- how people treat the neighborhood because yep. your house is in this neighborhood, whether you live in it or not, and you want it to be presentable. So I looked at all of those things. I looked at decorations for Christmas, taking them down in a timely manner, how long trash was sitting out on the curb before and mm-hmm. after trash day. Um, how active were they in getting to know their neighbors? Because yes. this is what you need because nosy neighbors will tell you everything, right? When you have a <laughs> all tenant. The all the tea. So I love that. I'm like, <laughs> yes, that's what we need. But in addition to that, it was a learning experience because 
back going back to my original condo, we lived in that condo for years before okay. we moved to Dubai. We knew mm -hmm. what the issues were. We knew what the potential maintenance would be. We had a timeline on when things had to be addressed, right? Mm -hmm. Living in a property gives you that knowledge of what to financially prepare for. Now, of mm -hmm. course, things are going to happen. Houses do housing things and mm -hmm. it, it's random sometimes, but we knew like, okay, in this house, the pipes, the water, the floors, this is when it needs to be done. This is what we redid when we moved in. So we shouldn't have to do this again for 20 years. Philly, on the other hand, I never lived there, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I did the cosmetic stuff to get it rentable and to get that most rent possible situation going on. But I didn't have, other than what the inspection told us, a timeline on like the quirks, the kinks, the sounds, the things that right. it would do. So fast forward, we get a tenant and things start to break or don't work. And it's like, are they being truthful or is this really a thing? Right. That's why I was so grateful that in the process of getting the house ready for a tenant, we did have one contractor that the realtor and the property manager and co management company we were looking at recommended, but it actually didn't work out with him. One of the things I learned was you need contracts. You need to set realistic expectations. Mm -hmm. He was hungry for the money, so he underbid the job and then didn't want or could finish it right right and that was really discouraging for us because we were like well we budgeted for this you told us it could be done and we had a timeline and we're coming up here thinking we're about to turn this key to open it for a rental look through or uh, put it on the market and you're not done so we had to fire the first contractor hire a second one but the second one was amazing and could do everything could do everything nice. from mold to repairs right so we had a team in place that when something happened, you could call him, he would come check on it, and he would give me the real story. Like, oh, <laughs> uh, you know? Yep. So prime example. One day, tenant has not paid rent on time. Okay, let's follow up. Following up, following up. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Then in the middle of the night, a pipe bursts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, I don't live there, never lived there. Don't know if this pipe was leaking. Have no idea. Mm -hmm. Tenant does not call the 24-7 emergency line for the property manager. Why? I don't know. But that's suspicion number one. Mm -hmm. He calls the neighbor who's a maintenance man at an apartment facility, right? Okay. And he fixes the pipe. And you still don't for know? No, no, I know. But okay. this is what I learned the next day because he didn't Got call it. the 24-hour number. Okay. So the next day I get a call from the property manager like, hey, a pipe burst last night and he didn't call our number so we could send someone over. He called the neighbor who is a repair technician or a maintenance man. And he charged $400 to do the job. I said, okay, send me a receipt. Send me an itemized receipt. Please send me more information about this contractor. Is he licensed? Is he bonded? Is he an independent contractor or does he really work for the apartment subdivision and he's their employee? Like, I need to know these things. Is right. his work warranty? You know, so I start asking 10, 10 frequently asked questions for someone who just has handed a bill for something yeah, I didn't exactly. know I was going to have to pay for. So then I get this general store 99 cent receipt that's mm. handwritten that just says fix broken pipe $400. I was like, mm. no. Mm -hmm. then I get more information like, oh, he just works for the apartment subdivision. He knows how to fix stuff. And he really tried to help me out. And it's $400. No. Call my guy. See, you always got to have a guy. Call my guy. Guy goes to the house, looks at the work. Cause I'm like, I need somebody else to look at this work. Cause it's not warranted. It's not bonded. He's not mm -hmm. licensed. My guy looks at it. He's like, it's done. Okay. But just so we're clear, had you even called my 24-hour number, this would have been no more than $200. You know oh, what I'm wow. saying? Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, what do I do? I have mm -hmm. two options. I could give him a break on the rent because he paid $400 <clears throat> for this repair, which is conveniently probably how much he was short on the rent. Or I could pay $200 and say you should have called my number and the consequence for doing so is $200. Mm -hmm. Or seek full rent, still pay $400. Mm -hmm. So I decided, actually, 
to eat it, right? Because I kind of saw the writing on the wall, like, this person's moving soon. Okay. So, AKA getting evicted, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I ate the 400, allowed them to pay half the rent or, you know, just under and took it in and said, okay, let's move forward. But then they were late again. Mm -hmm. So, AKA the writing's on the wall. You can't pay the rent. And now there's not another pipe that's going to be bursting. You're just going to have to be evicted. So I had to go through the eviction process in Philadelphia, which Mm -hmm. is no fun. I had to hire an attorney. Fortunately, the property manager we utilized, they had someone who you could contract out. You have to go to court. The court has to say yes to the eviction. And oh, by the way, we don't evict in the winter Christmas in the winter months, time right yeah mm-hmm. so they evict in the winter but not christmas and the person was late for christmas rent wonder what they bought christmas gifts who knows mm-hmm. and then they were late in january so by january we were able to pursue the eviction and they did have to leave but that experience kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth for rentals and mm-hmm. the back and forth and i'm not in philly so that's a two to three hour drive for me and yeah property manager some issues you had to do in person like philly you have to put the water in your name not the tenant you have to go set some of these things up in person you, you know so those things kind of annoyed me yeah. and even though it was a profitable experience when it was profitable it was a harm it was a hurtful experience when it wasn't and I didn't. I got into real estate investing, honestly, to provide affordable housing and to people of color. That's what I wrote as my mission. I wanted to get a house every year and you know fill it with people who, if they wanted to, could buy the home. And at one point, had even talked to that tenant about purchasing the home for themselves. Like mm-hmm. I was here to make people of color homeowners. When that didn't quite work out the way I planned, I did get a little discouraged, but I didn't give up. What I did mm-hmm. instead. Well, wait, before we jump into what you're going to say, because there was so much there oh, that yeah. you just, just shared. Talking. So let me, let's unpack for the folks. Okay. So we, because one, so your first property that you rented out, you then moved abroad. And mm-hmm. so what was it like managing or having someone manage for you a property while you were not even just in a different state, but in a whole different country? Tell me yeah, about so that. that. So I have friends who live in other countries and they self-manage. We okay. chose not to do so. Okay. <laughs> okay. One, <laughs> the time difference. It's a 14-hour flight, and it was about, I can't remember, six or seven-hour time difference. I'm not here for three o'clock in the morning calls about busted pipes. So mm-hmm. we did have a property manager. Property manager, I found through a network, like asking around. Worked out great. They were a one-man show at the time, so they could be in person and get to know the tenant if they needed to, but the tenant never knew us, which I still continue that type of relationship. I want to be able to pass you in the street, walk in my old neighborhood, and you don't know that it's me. So property manager was my way of making it work, and I didn't mind the 7% or 10% that we paid at the time. That was totally 100% worth it. But that's it really wasn't any issues. What we what we had happen real life, because I'm also into finances. So let me teach you the financial side of it. When we moved to Dubai, we had someone else paying our rent. My job was providing housing. My husband didn't require housing because he lived with us. But his job Mm -hmm. would allow us to get like a stipend towards healthcare expenses and other things. So a lot of expenses that we normally would have paid in the U.S. We were not Mm -hmm. paying in Dubai. So that means hey, why don't we just pretend we're still paying our mortgage like we always do Mm -hmm. and save the difference, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. We continued to pay the mortgage and the rent money was going into this bank account, just collecting, collecting, collecting. Love it, love it. So that is the seed money that helped us purchase the Philly property. Actually, I should have said that. So when you have opportunities like that, definitely take advantage of using one property to pay for another property. Absolutely. Now, did you ever consider before you decided to get the property manager and have a tenant, did you ever consider selling your original condo? Yes. But remember, 2012, we're not in a position, it's underwater, it's worth more on a note than it is in the actual market. So that wasn't an option. Love that. So being able to actually see, okay, this is how much my mortgage is. This is how much I still owe on this. This is what they're mm-hmm. going rated for is so important for people to understand and trying to decide what is their exit strategy, essentially. Exactly. And it wasn't a good time for you to exit. So 
what did did you always consider yourself like I can do this I can be a landlord be an investor or what was that shift for you like oh yeah so my dad gave me rich dad poor dad when I turned 16 and I was in high school okay so (laughs) my dad was like you gonna know something (laughs) because that that's just the mindset he has his His grandfather, his grandfather, shout out to Felix Watson, was a landlord all over New York and he had multiple jobs, but he was very present in the community. And my dad used to go with him to collect rent all over Brooklyn. So my dad grew up thinking this is normal. Like you own property, you are a member of your community. And oh, when people need something, you take it out your wallet and you give. So he's, my dad's very giving. He's also very like entrepreneurship, entrepreneur minded. But my dad went into the military. So he took the path of, you know, let me serve my country. He lived abroad in Germany, Texas, and and then Georgia was where he retired after 22 years. And in Georgia, when he retired, he then proceeded to build his real estate portfolio. So my dad went up, I think he got up to like 10 properties before 2008, where he was leveraging his credit to get houses and then moving tenants in. So I saw a lot of that um, prior to the crash. And I Mm -hmm. saw how that could potentially be something I do. But I did a much more conservative scale because my dad was heavily impacted by 2008 when he had all these properties, but he had tenants who were paying less and less of their rent due to Mm -hmm. their economic situation. So he had to take a huge hit when people stopped paying and he had more houses than he could afford. So I said, okay, let me just leverage the house we live in and then get one at a time. And when they're able to fully pay for themselves or they're paid, because in our case, we pay cash for the Philly rental, Mm -hmm. then I can continue to grow and grow and grow. And you can do it that way or you can leverage credit. Like I could have gotten a mortgage on the Philly property but a lot less banks will mortgage $36,000, right? They're not, Mm -hmm. that's not, they're not going to make a lot of money. So they're not necessarily excited to do a loan for that amount. But if I had gotten a 75K or a 100K house, they probably would have given me a mortgage for that. So I tell people do what you're comfortable with, but understand the risk, right? We tied up a lot of cash to purchase a property that did return it in cash flow on a monthly basis, but that was our up- upfront investment, whereas others will choose to leverage credit and pay back the house over time. Either way works. But for us, it kept us a little cleaner on the books. It got us to dive right in and got us to be able to get a really good opportunity before anyone else because they were motivated sellers and they didn't even want to wait the 30 days for a mortgage. Right. Mm-hmm. So we took advantage of that opportunity. Okay. I love that. Now talk to me now. So you're back here in the States, you come back from Dubai and you're in Virginia. Is that right at this Mm -hmm. point? Now we're in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Now you're in Virginia. And so you hear about these properties in Philadelphia. What made you, was it just the price that made you decide I should explore this or was there something more there? The price and the market. Philly at the time was a market that could tolerate low purchase prices minimal renovation if you get the right property and high rents. So the cash flow is going to be there. And Mm -hmm. if we didn't succeed in getting a tenant naturally, we could always also do section eight. So there was just this opportunity to have two pools of applicants, but we chose to choose a traditional applicant first because Mm -hmm. section eight requires paperwork, inspection, and time. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, depending on which one you get, then you might earn more. And in that time in the market, you earned more from a traditional tenant. But Section 8 was more consistent, guaranteed income, especially if the person was only paying a portion of their rent and the government was paying the rest. So we had two plans. We were like, let's get the house ready for anyone to move in. If we're not able to get a traditional tenant, we will seek Section 8 tenants and do the work required for that. But we know that this market has both and has ample, you know, candidates for both. And that's literally what happened. It didn't take us long. When the house was finally done, I think it was rented within two weeks after a couple of viewings. And then you did the credit check. We did the credit check and background on the applicant. Okay. Okay. Now you mentioned you bought this property in Philly with a business partner. 
talk about going into business with either friends or people that you know. How did that relationship come about? And how did you know that you were aligned in the same vision and what you were trying to do? So full transparency, my business partner was my cousin. And we actually, but interestingly enough, like, before we actually talked about real estate to each other, we didn't know we were both interested in investing in real estate. So I always tell people like you have to be vocal with your family and friends about mm-hmm. what you're trying to do because you never know who's trying to do it too and may be willing to do it with you. But here's my rule of thumb. Just because we're family and friends doesn't mean we don't need paperwork. So my cousin and I did a joint venture agreement that was legally binding. We set out the terms before any money was exchanged. And the terms included, how are we dividing the responsibilities for this property? And it's not just about the money, but we did say, okay, all financial expenses will be split 50-50. And we wrote that in the joint venture agreement all responsibility would be 50-50. So I was in charge of the administrative tasks and dealing with the property manager. She was in charge of locating the contractors and the resources we needed to get stuff done. So we had a division of labor. We had a division Mm -hmm. of costs. We also had a written agreement on how we would resolve disputes. So we would talk through any financial transactions you know, over $100 that required both of our input. But then if we couldn't agree on the issue, we would bring in a third party to resolve it. Outlining everything before a dispute is always better because you are doing it when you're at a calm mind, safe Mm -hmm. space, and you're all happy. And then if stuff goes down, you can just revert back to what did we say we would do and do it, right? So there's no wishy-washy about it. We did the paperwork, we signed the paperwork, we notarized it, we put it in our records, and we referred back to it as needed. So anytime you're going to work with someone else, do that. We also decided at that time to invest in an LLC, like under my LLC. So that's why it was a joint venture between our two LLCs. My cousin has one and I have one, right? So Mm -hmm. those two companies had a joint venture agreement. I love Um, that. So I definitely recommend always have your paperwork in place. Feel free to use an attorney if need be to draft it and to make sure it's, it doesn't have any loopholes. But that's how we got started. And we knew that we both had an interest in real estate. That same cousin is the cousin who invested in the, my first hotel with me. And now we have multiple hotels together. So we have grown in our investing journey, but that's mm-hmm. how we started. Okay. Now, when you all started this JV, both of y'all are working as well, in addition to starting investing in real estate. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. 15 years with the government. She was with the reserves. She still is. And a a full-time mom. And I think she was working with a company at the time as well. So yeah, we we had jobs. We had had children. We had husbands. But that part, we worked it out. Like we had meetings, right? We had our regular meetings where we would talk about the property, what needed to be done. We talked a lot when, when, especially during the renovation stage, as we were doing paperwork, we drove up to the property together on most of the trips. And it was crazy because even during that time, she found out she was pregnant. So then it became rego mom dealing with wow. all this stuff. So yeah, but it was just communication. Communication mm-hmm. is key when you're working with someone else. So you definitely have to kind of set some rules. Like it's a job. You know, when are we going to meet? What are we going to talk about? What's the agenda? What are the outstanding items? You know, if stuff comes up while you're at work, text each other to say, okay, we need to talk tonight or when the kids go down and then you make that a part of your routine. And so really, it sounds like you all really set the standard early. We are operating a business. And so we have business meetings. We have our documentation. We have everything Mm -hmm. set in place for this to flow Mm -hmm. successfully. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a business. You, You are literally dealing with thousands of dollars in a business account. (laughs) Yes. Okay. And the revenue is coming in. So absolutely. Yes. Okay. Love it. Love it. Now talk to me. You mentioned that there was some shifts in contractors. So how did you go about finding contractors? What did you know to say, okay, this is someone that I would want to work with. And then I want to talk about how this renovation process, because a lot of people are really scared to even take on rehab projects because it sounds so daunting. Right. So first and foremost, only do what you can afford to do. And that's not even just financially, like mentally, emotionally, right? Because this is work. 
and it's out of state. So if it's really major, you got to put your eyes on it. You can't, when you're paying a contractor for a series of projects and you are delaying money until the projects are completed, you can't just take their iPhone and tell them to show you what they've done. They will show you what they want to show you, right? Mm -hmm. So these are trips to go check on the work before you authorize continuing or, hey, we had a hiccup, this termites. Like that was a real thing. Oh my God, the house has termites in the back porch, entrance floor, blah, blah, blah. So we had to put that in our estimate. Okay, term termites need to be treated for, not severe, but now we need a company. So mm -hmm. first thing we did was ask our realtor who also was friends with a lot of property managers, like, who do you recommend? Because you're from this area, this is your, your space. So I always pursue referrals from people I'm working with because if you're really in the industry, then you should have these contacts, right, on a Rolodex. Mm -hmm. So that's what we started with. And even when it didn't go so well and we had to change contractors, I didn't blame my the person who told me about them. You know, it's not their fault that person didn't perform, but they helped me get out of that, right? Like navigating away from toxic to productive mm -hmm. as soon as possible and gave me some other recommendations. And I just vetted them more thoroughly because now I was like, I need you to agree to finish someone else's work. And some people won't do that, right? Because right. they'll be like, I wouldn't have done it this way. Or he, this person took shortcuts here, here, and here. And if, if I finish it, you're going to think I'm responsible. So we had to really navigate that carefully because the next contractor was finishing someone else's work and was also trying to warranty you know, what they were doing. So it took some finesse, but we found a really, really good person the second time around. And we gave ourselves grace. Like at the end of the day, we're all human. We're not perfect. It was our first out of state property. We are, we're bound to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So start to finish, how long did that renovation take for you all? I would say three to four months. And some okay. of it was just because Philly snow you know, some of the work on the outside of property couldn't be done until the snow was gone and, you know, different things like that. But we rented by April. We closed in December. We found a place in December. I think we closed in January. I'll take that back. And then we rented by April. Got it. So timing mm -hmm. factors, definitely people need to take in place, weather, time of year, things like that when they're thinking right. about when they're purchasing. Right. And what type of work you're doing, right? Like I did not take out walls. I didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to like, this HGTV project. No, I know mm -hmm. my limitations. We had a very small budget for renovations. And like I said, most of it was all cosmetic. So paint, new cabinets for the kitchen. And we ended up buying a new fridge because girl, that the, the previous owner passed away and nobody opened that fridge literally oh, no. until they sold that house. Oh, so no. we tried, we cleaned it. We like we did the bleach, we did, but the smell could not mm -hmm. come out. So we just got a new fridge. Like those mm -hmm. are things that you're like, oh, I think I could get away with this, 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 and this. Oh, I'm gonna keep the stove. I'm gonna keep, mm -hmm. and then you're like, oh, I cannot keep this refrigerator on on mm -hmm. no circumstances mm -hmm. in the name of Jesus. Like <laughs> we just yeah. we tried, right? So those are little things that we kind of figured out as we went. But I would say. Whatever timeline you give yourself for repairs and renovations, add three weeks. <laughs> because somebody going to mess up. Somebody mm -hmm. going to deliver late. Somebody's going to buy the wrong thing, some, something. Right. And then for your budget, give yourself 10% buffer, 10 to 20%. Okay. Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit because you said, okay, so we had this rental. This was cute, but it was a lot of work, especially <laughs> with this tenant who don't want to pay. So then mm -hmm. you made a pivot in your business. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So look, when you when the market is hot and you tired, sell. Okay. So <laughs> it was 20, I don't know, was it 2019? I think it was 20. Yeah, it was 2019. Market in Philly was hot. Like when I tell you people were looking, they were like crawling around trying to be the first to find out about properties before they hit the market. So our property manager was like, look, if you don't tired of this house, this is the time to sell. I know it's January, but we have cash investors who are just, they don't, they didn't even, no inspection, no questions. They didn't even ask, was the person currently, current on the rent? They just took, wow. they just made an offer. We ran the numbers and was like, yep, we'll still be profitable. We'll pay off any outstanding debt. 
which we didn't really have any, maybe some like credit card stuff for stuff we fixed the last six months or so, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't really much there. And then we said, okay, this is good. So we closed once again, less than 10 days, cash offer, split the proceeds according to our JV agreement. And then I held on to my money waiting for the next opportunity and really in prayer. Like I told God, I was like, I know real estate is profitable and a great way to build wealth. I just don't want to deal with toilets and tenants. So please show me, (laughs) show me how do I make that happen? And I talked to my dad about it. And then I just, again, I vocalized out loud to other people what I wanted and the, and the God attracted to me what I needed to hear. So literally 2019, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do toilets and tenants. I'm just sick of it. You know, we still have our condo in Maryland to this day, but that's it. I'm not actively pursuing rentals. And 2020, a friend who I only know through the internet, literally through Instagram, reached out to me and was like, hey, I'm hosting this conference with this two women that invest in hotels and you do real estate, they do real estate. Like, can can y'all link up? And can you be a facilitator for one of the speaking panels? And I said, sure, I love to speak. And, you know, 2020, everybody's online, all the Mm -hmm. conferences, all Mm -hmm. the everything. So I said, oh, I don't have to leave my house and I could do something fun. Like, sign me up, right? So we got introduced to, I got introduced to Javon Reeves and Jessica Myers of Epic Collective. And we did this conference about generational wealth, investing in real estate. The panel went great. And I was like, I want to keep up with these women. Like, they seem really dope. And so June of 2020, we did the conference. I I built a relationship. I reached out and said, ladies, you know, I want to continue to stay in touch. And I would love to see what we can continue to do together. How about I have you on my podcast, the Purpose of Money podcast? And we're like, okay, great. I'd love that. So July, we recorded. September or August, we recorded. September, their episode drops, you know, how to invest in hotels. And through collective investing. So bringing people together to buy hotels. It's still one of my number one episodes on the show. Wow. But I was like, listen, that interview was dope. Because one, when I interviewed them, never did I think I would invest in hotels. I literally was like, this would be really cool for my audience, right? Like, I'm sure you do that. You're like, this would be really cool for my people to hear. But then you're interviewing and you're like, wait a minute. I can do that. Like, (laughs) why don't I do that, right? Mm -hmm. So I said to them, like, I really like what you're doing. I'm going to sign up for your email list. So once again, God is always, always working in your favor. So September episode drops. Life is great. 2020, my business exploded. So I'm super busy talking about all things life insurance, real estate. October... The end of September, they sent out an email like, hey, who wants to buy a Hilton with us? Didn't see it. Missed it completely. Second email goes out. Hey, are you interested in investing in a Hilton hotel? See it. Now I see it. Now we on. Read it. (laughs) Oh, I want to learn more. Girl, the rest is history. I saw that second email. That's how I knew it was for me. I looked at the prospectus. Possible returns, purchase price, talked to my husband about it, had a third party review the deal. He was like, these numbers are great. And then I had to take into context the environment. It is 2020. People are not traveling and hotels are going literally on sale, literally on sale. So we had this unique opportunity to purchase an amazing, fairly new hotel in Oklahoma. And it was a business that Post-COVID is going to do great. Pre-COVID, it did great, right? It's literally Mm -hmm. just, again, another motivated seller. Mm -hmm. So the owner had eight hotels, couldn't obviously keep up all of them in a pandemic when they were all suffering. Bank comes along, is offering a great opportunity to take over the note. We said, okay. And Jessica and Davon said, let's pull some people together and purchase this together. So I told my cousin about it. October, we put our money in. We closed by the end of October, like 20 days. Like, And literally, that's been the smoothest hotel closing I've ever had. None of them. (laughs) The first one. They needed you in. They needed you in. They needed me (laughs) to get hooked into the deal. 
none of them have been that easy since. But but great. And then Davon and Jessica opened the opportunity to ask tons of questions to learn. And I, they let me ask whatever I wanted to ask because they knew I wasn't giving them a dollar until I had the comfort that this was where my money should go. So just that's how it went. And I would say they're my aunties now for my little kids. And we're like family. We travel together. We're about to hang out for my birthday. You know, all the things. So I definitely, I love them and I love what they introduced me to because now I'm like, I don't need to deal with toilets and tenants. I could just buy existing businesses, which are hotels. And when you purchase hotels, you're purchasing the land, you're purchasing the business itself. So any revenue it generates, whether it's Wi-Fi, the candy store, the restaurant tenants, you know, the services that clients pay for when they come stay, those are all a part of the potential revenue of the business. And that's what's potentially split between the investors after expenses are paid. Wow, that is amazing. So let's let's break this down a little bit more because first off, most people, I, I can't imagine like I'm going to buy a hotel or I'm going to invest in a hotel. So even thinking about starting that process, what were some of the questions that were going through your mind and what made you comfortable to even decide to pursue? Right. So comfort was seeing the numbers, looking at the other hotels in the market and what they were making and talking about it with my husband, understanding the risk and realizing that like, you know, with life comes risk or reward, you have to pick a path. If, and I knew that if it didn't work out, I would not suffer tremendous loss if I lost my investment because I had other money saved, retirement, personal savings. So I was like, this is a risk I'm willing to take because I can afford to take it. Mm-hmm. Ideally, I want this to be a profitable venture. I don't want anyone to fail, but I'm not giving them my last dollar. I'm not mortgaging my house. I am literally using cash that's just sitting here mm-hmm. and would do more for me if I put it into an asset. So that was my thought process. And then also I just saw the potential in like opening the door to other contacts, other opportunities, being in a network of hotel investors, which hotel investors are a higher echelon of people who you want to know, right? Mm -hmm. They're cool. They're humble. And then I thought about the other perks too, like, hey, I might get hotel discounts on stays and the Hilton brand and, you know, things like that. (laughs) So that was also attractive to me, if I'm being honest. And so you mentioned running the numbers. And so oftentimes new investors, they hear that, but they don't actually know what that means. So Mm -hmm. what does that look like for you? So everybody is going to have different results that they expect from a deal. I can only speak to me. So here's my personal request. If you're going to bring something to me, I want my initial investment to be double or tripled by the time we sell. So they presented a outline of how they were going to build the revenue, get the hotel back into the hotspot to stay post-COVID, during COVID, whatever we could do. And then they outlined quarterly dividends so that after the first year, we would see that revenue coming back to us throughout ownership and then also see a return on the investment at the time of sale. Everybody's deal is different. So you have to look at what are they saying and then what do the numbers say? Because one, if they don't know what they're doing, the numbers will never make sense, right? And if it's too good to be true, run. Don't walk away, just run. (laughs) But the other thing that I would say is you also have to look at who is in the deal. So who's managing it as the general partner? Davon and Jessica Myers were managing it because they were going to do the day-to-day. Let me be clear. I am a limited partner in hotel investing. So I am the person who gets some of the profits and proceeds, but I am not making sure guests get checked in. I don't make sure beds are made up. I don't hire or fire anyone. I don't get to decide the color of the walls. Hilton does, you know, like stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So that's things that you need to think about. So know your lane. But then I also looked at, okay, what am I going to get? And they offered monthly communication on the financials, access to the financials, transparency, opportunity to visit the property after we close, which we did, opportunity to have hotel discounts, opportunity to ask questions to get to know them. 
because I was literally investing in them. I had no proof that none of this would work out. But when I looked at potentially what could happen, I put in, you know, 25 to 50 K, I get back two to three times that in three to five years, and I get cash flow throughout the ownership. That looks good to me, right? But again, I still had to say, if I lose this investment, I'm gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to like think through that. And now those are the decisions that I thought through. Those are the numbers that I looked for. I also looked at, you know, how profitable are the other hotels in the neighborhood? Because you also want to look at demand and pricing. And are you the most competitive? Are you the cheapest? Are you the best? What are the reviews? So those are things that you can look at when it comes to hotel investing. But and then asking around like, if you don't know the industry, ask people in the industry. Have you ever heard of this person? You know, Devon's been in for 15 years. She started out as working at a front desk and then managing assets and then general partner of three hotels. So that was where I was like, okay, she knows what she's doing. But at that time, it this was her first deal, right? So I was still, again, investing in them and hoping that it all worked out. So... <laughs> And it did, thank God. But, you know, you have to kind of leave yourself open to anything can happen when you start doing private investments. So you have to prepare yourself for that. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that this entire deal started because you met them on Instagram. Yes. In the Mm -hmm. world of social media, we're so easily connected. How do you make connections like that that can actually potentially lead to future partnerships? You have to engage. You have to participate. I had a friend that we met on Instagram. He also does businesses and building businesses. We met on a phone call, see how we could help each other in our businesses, learn more about who we are. And then we just kept in touch. We liked, we engaged, we looked at their posts, we asked questions, we attended their virtual events. When you're not able to meet in person, you do as much virtual engagement as possible. And then when COVID or the pandemic was less present because it's probably all still here. Then we went to in-person, you know, fly Mm -hmm. to Atlanta, meet Jessica and Devon in person. We did a couple of recordings of other shows and things together. So that's where you build relationship. But, it, you know, there's different ways to do it. I have other investments that I do that I gave them a check. They give me monthly reports. We have no meetings, but that whenever I want to meet, they meet, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to be the investor who's seeking investors, you have to open yourself up to building relationships and meeting with investors, especially when they're new and they want your attention, right? Mm -hmm. Because nobody's going to give you money and then walk away and not care. Most people, I don't care. I've seen people get full into $31 purchases, right? So let alone $30,000 purchases. So you (laughs) you have to understand where people are. In this space, obviously, I wanted to protect my initial investment, but I also was like, hey, I could do literally the amount of a down payment, $20,000 to $25,000, and not have to do all the repairs, remodels, rent contract, phone calls, complaints, evictions. The eviction did it for me. I, I have to just be honest. So that's something I would say, but building a relationship beyond liking your posts and commenting on it, but like offering up time to chat, to get to know each other and building that relationship beyond social media is how you do it. Absolutely. Love that. Now, one of the things you mentioned as well was you had to be able to speak. This is what I'm looking to do. So even first when it started with your cousin, but then when you wanted to go into bigger deals, you had to be willing to tell people, this is what I'm interested in. Do you know anyone? Are you interested? What was that process like, especially when it's something brand new that you may not be as familiar or comfortable with? I just talk about it. You know, when people ask you, what are you interested in? What do you do? I'm a real estate investor. Even if you don't have a property, but if that's your intention, then you are a real estate investor doing your research to find your first deal. That's totally okay to be honest about. And then you will be surprised on what people end up saying because I actually learned about apartment syndications before hotels from another coworker. I tell you, my old job was like the Mecca of black (laughs) excellence. On the side, on the side, all these people doing things on the side. So at my job, there were people buying multi-million dollar apartments 
with groups of investors on the side. And when I found that out, I interviewed them on my podcast too. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, you know, um, just really learned. Like I picked their brain. I, we had lunch. I was like, Pam, tell me how you doing this. Um, you know, and understanding how apartment syndications work. But the only reason the money that I had for the hotel was there is because I couldn't find a good apartment syndication deal in 2020. It was like the real estate market was just crazy. It was overpriced opportunities, not a lot of profit, and it wasn't anything coming up. So I just said, well, I really wanted to do that this year. It didn't happen. So let me do this apart this hotel. And then in 2021, in July of 2021, I did the apartments. So I think it took time, but I just kept asking. And then I kept putting myself on the email list for people who do that. So that's another thing too. Like I share deals on my email list. So subscribe to the purpose of money.com if you're interested, but being on the list lets you see the opportunities, read the criteria, figure out what the buy-in is going to be. And then when the right opportunity comes along, you can take action. Okay. So now tell me about this last pivot now, because we have the, we have the rental then we have the hotel. And then you mentioned, so y'all had some bomb coworkers and lunch was not just we complaining about our supervisors, but we making mm-hmm. money deals. Exactly. So what was that apartment syndication? What does that even mean, first off, okay. for people that may not be familiar? And then what was that process yes. like? So apartment syndications are, if you ever lived in an apartment and it was just you and 100 other people, 25 other people, 50 other people, apartments just like yours, right? One bedroom, two bedroom, three A lot of times those are owned by groups of investors or companies. So just imagine the last apartment you lived in or someone you know lived in, if there was more than four units, that was a commercial property. Somebody owned that with a group of investors or under a business. There are people out there who buy those. They find them, they buy them, they renovate them to rent them for higher rent, but then they also sell them, right? So The apartment syndication space is when a group of investors purchases a group of apartments or multiple units, and then they will acquire them, renovate them if they need renovation, rent them at higher rents so they can bring in that cash flow, and then manage them for three to seven years. And in the the time that you're managing it, every time the rent gets collected, it pays the expenses and then pays the investors. So it's still real estate investing. It's still one time, most of the time, capital contribution. You close just like you would on a house, but it's units of 100 or 50 or two, 300. And then you have someone who's in charge of the deals day to day, working with a property manager to make sure rents get paid, activities are there for the tenants to do, the pools clean, stuff like that. But as an investor, I get a percentage of the profits every single month or every single quarter. In this case, I get paid out monthly. And it's this similar cash flow to if I had a property. So to me, it's still the same thing. I put in about 20, 25, 50. Then you get monthly cash flow. And then when you sell, you get a portion of the proceeds at the time of sale. But there's also the option. If you don't want to do that, if you don't want to wait for your pay out throughout ownership and pay out when you sell. Alternatively, you can just contribute capital to the deal so they can help close and your money helps go towards closing costs and expenses for the project. And then you get a higher return on that investment, like a very, very high yield savings account, right? Mm -hmm. So just think if you're like, I just want more money on this money that's sitting in the bank. I'll give you $20,000 or $25,000. You give me 10% return. You know, that's better than leaving it in the bank. So some of the deals you have an option A and an option B. Option A is the 10% return on the cash you put in. Option B is a lower percentage on the return, but monthly cash flow and money from the sale. If you only contribute capital, you don't get any money when they sell. You just get your money as the ownership is taking place. And then once we sell, if we make a whole bunch of profit, you don't get any of the profit. Got it. So one of the things my mentor talks a lot about is like determining not just your risk factor, but also what is your desire right now? Are you needing cash right now? Or Mm -hmm. is this for more of a long-term play for that appreciation Mm -hmm. and extending your net worth? Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. So you have to figure that part out for yourself. In my case, I leverage 
this is a whole nother episode. So we might have to come back for part two. Come on, we ready but for part two. <laughs> I leverage retirement funds. So money I don't need today and I yes. just want in the future. And it was sitting in the stock market or just like hanging out. I used a portion of it, not all of it. Again, I'm not giving them my last house. I'm not giving them the whole thing. But I used a portion of my retirement savings that I felt with or without it, I could still retire with ease. And I used that to do my, after the Philly property, the um, hotel and the apartment syndication. So that is what I'm leveraging. And therefore it doesn't affect me, but the cash flow that comes in is also going towards my retirement because I'm reinvesting it back into the account so I can buy more deals. So I've been mm -hmm. doing that for a couple of years now and invest in more businesses or whatever I want to do. But you could easily do the same thing with cash you have if you want cash flow. So if you're looking for more income in the present, you would still invest the same amount. But instead of using a solo 401k like I did, you would use money in a checking account, money in a brokerage account, money in active savings or something you can access easily. And then when the cash flow comes in every month, it goes to your bank account so you can then use it for your bills. But what we didn't talk about is the underlying benefit of it all is the depreciation that you get to claim on your taxes. So as an investor in some of these deals, you get issued a K-1 and you get to write off a portion of the losses or the cost of the deals too, which has in some years lowered my taxes or taxable income so much that I got a refund. And I tell you, I haven't gotten refunds in years. <laughs> so that is another game changer for me that I had no idea when you do this private equity stuff. You get to literally write off some of the business's expenses. So that was really, really eye-opening for me. But yes, using a solo 401k to invest in deals is a game changer. Using a solo 401k has also allowed me to lower my taxable income because when I make contributions to that account, my business is paying for my future retirement but also I get the tax deduction because my business is a sole proprietor. So when I file my taxes, my contributions to the solo 401k are tax deductible. So separate episode, game changer, but you should do it. And that is what I've been doing. And you can definitely figure out what you need. If you need the cash flow, then go with the cash flow option. If you need the retirement, then go with the retirement option. Absolutely. Definitely got to come back for another episode on that because there was so much that we can unpack with that. People don't know our tax code. If you if you do it right, you can win out here. And so it is set up for businesses, not for employees. And mm -hmm. so having more people understand that real estate investing is a business. And so then we then will be able to benefit from all of the business benefits in the tax mm -hmm. code is going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. So we definitely gonna have to get you back to talk more about that and unpack that. Because a lot of us have 401ks. We don't know what we're doing. They told us to contribute. And so they're there. <laughs> but how can we make this work for us? Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. And that's what I did. I leveraged I leverage it all. I leverage whatever matters at the time. Credit, retirement, savings, cash. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, where can the people find you? How can how can they get on this list if they want to just, even if they just want to start seeing what deals when they're presented look like, how can they connect yes. with you? Yes, let's do it. So first and foremost, follow me on Instagram at The Purpose of Money. That's at The Purpose of Money. Don't forget the the. Check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com, where I have a blog, a podcast, and more great tips to help you build wealth. And on my podcast and on Instagram, you have the opportunity to set up a free consultation with me where we can talk about your money goals. So let's go sign up. I'll be there to set up the call and I'll be on the other end. I love that. So before we, before we go, one thing that I like to do with this is a year from now, three years from now, your choice. When we look back on this recording and we say, you know what? She told us she was going to do that and she did it. What can we be looking forward to seeing? Child, so I just went full-time entrepreneur and I yes, left my government career of 15 years. So a year from now, you will still see me as a full-time entrepreneur with, God willing, a half a million or million dollar business and a team that is unshakable and loves to work for me because I am building the best place to work. 
and a email marketer who on the side, I built a six figure email marketing business. And now I'm going out and telling people about it because I built it in secret and now I'm telling the world. So you will also see me on the front stages talking about that business a year from now, six months from now. Wait a minute. You just going to slide that in at the end. Wait, (laughs) That's amazing. That is amazing. You are an amazing woman. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. We definitely gonna have to get you to come back because there's so much more that we can share with the people, but you are just wonderful. And I'm so appreciative for you. Yes. Thank you, Tiffany, for this opportunity. I can't wait to hear this episode and share with my audience. So let's go. Awesome. All right, y'all. Aids to assets. Own something. Go out and buy your way to wealth. Until next time. for tuning in to another insightful episode of Aid to Assets. Remember, your journey from nine to fiver to successful real estate investor is within reach. Keep learning, keep growing, and keep investing in your future. If you'd like to know more, connect with me on Instagram at Aid to Assets. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Until next time, happy investing.